a lot, guys. Well, this is the part of our uh, gathering where what we usually do is our scripture reading, and we're going to do it again now. And so if you take a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 8 with me. And uh, usually we have somebody else um, doing the scripture reading, but I thought today I would uh, be kind and do it myself. Uh, I figured if I'm going to ask people to read and read words and names that are, are difficult to pronounce, maybe one time I should get up here and do it and uh, take it myself. So I'll, uh, I'll do it this morning. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be at verse 22. I did give myself a week where there's no, no hard uh, names anywhere. So here we go. Mark chapter 8, 22, uh, through the end of the chapter. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out to the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went up. Uh, went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on the things, not, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would be illuminated to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, for those of you guys who are new with us, we are in a series uh, on the New Testament book of Mark, the gospel or the good news of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Mark from the account of Peter, who Mark was an assistant to. And we've been hitting one chapter per week going through... um, the book of Mark, since the beginning of the new year, and doing it in such a way where we're picking pieces of each chapter that would really give us a good overview and a good grip on the life and the ministry and the message of of Jesus Christ. And so we're calling this series Pictures of Jesus because the way Mark kind of functions is it gives us these short, vivid, but very descriptive clips of the life of Jesus. And what God the Holy Spirit will do is he'll file scriptures away into our mind and bring them to remembrance when appropriate in life. And so what we saw when we last looked at Mark chapter 7 is we saw Jesus uh, speaking and kind of sparring with some religious leaders, some super prideful men, and he exposes their heart. 
This week, what we're going to do is, is we're going to get a little more personal, and we're going to see Jesus get very personal, specifically with his disciples. And so now we're going to move into the pastoral prayer um, part of our, our message. And so let's uh, take some time, and let's pray together and ask God just to work in our hearts, his disciples, this morning. So why don't we pray? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given it to us so that we might hear from you, we might know of you, we might know your plan, and we might use it for guidance in our lives. And Father, I pray this morning that you would illuminate it to our hearts and into our minds. And uh, Lord, we do want to lift up to you some things that are just heavy on our hearts right now. We uh, want to praise you um, for, for bringing uh, baby Rose, uh, Rosie into this world. And uh, God, we thank you um, that Holly is, is relieved of, of the pain and the kidney issues that she's uh, been experiencing for, for many months now. We thank you for that. We thank you for new life. And we just commit their family to you. We pray that you would just give them rest and uh, Lord, just grow them in this time as they focus uh, in on their, their new child. And we just commit her into your hands. We pray that she would grow up to be a woman of God who loves Jesus, places faith in Jesus. So we commit the Smiths to you right now as Holly and, and the girls are home uh, for several more weeks so that the, the baby doesn't get sick up to the due date, Lord. We just pray that you would uh, just, just give her uh, good times with you, good times with Ben, and, and just be with the family, Lord. We commit them to you. And uh, God, we want to continue to pray for Sindel as she's away now with her sister. Specifically, we just want to lift up her, her health to you. We know that it's increasingly um, deteriorating, Lord. And we just pray that you would put your hand on her, that she might just sense that peace that passes all understanding. We know she needs it. And so we commit her into your hand. Lord. We ask for a miracle that you would heal her. And uh, we trust you for that, God. And uh, Father, this morning as we um, look at some stuff that I think is really, really pertinent for us as, as disciples of Jesus, Lord, I, I ask that you would just speak to us in a very specific way that, that the word would be served up uh, in a way by your spirit that it would just show us specifically something that we need to to take and apply and, and to live out and uh, encourage us with your word. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to hone in on the second half of Mark chapter 8 this morning. So that's where we're at. And uh, what's going on is Jesus is working on the hearts of the disciples. And, and let me just tell you, God is working on my heart. He's just constantly working on my heart. Every single day I'm just sensing just, just the, the work of, of the Holy Spirit in my heart changing me and, and stretching me and saying, here's where you need to go, here's what you need to confess, what you need to repent of. He's constantly doing that in me, and he wants to constantly do that in you, constantly uh, working on your heart like he's doing on the disciples as we see this morning. I want you to know that your Christian faith is a journey. Be mindful of that, that it's, it's, it's a journey. Once you become a Christian, John says that you pass from death into life, and so it's important to know that you are secure in that, you're, you're secure in that, yet you are not to be stationary. We're secure, but not stationary. We're constantly growing, we're constantly uh, pressing towards that next degree of, of faithfulness, and, and so we kind of even see this in the lives of the disciples, this journey that they're, they're on. So we saw in Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls them to be disciples so that they might be with him, it says, and then he would send them out to preach. He has a plan for them. It's discipleship, followers of Jesus, and apostleship, 
and that is secure. However, they have a long, long, long way to go, and we'll see that this morning. We all really have a long way uh, to go, and, and, and we want to keep growing. We will have never arrived while living on this earth, and, and God really for us always has this next step that we are to take, and so I would challenge you constantly be looking, God, what's that next step for me in, in my growth process? And so I just pray that God's going to give us all this godly discontentment that we're just ready to, 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 to grow and always be unsatisfied spiritually with where we're at. We want to be content in the Lord, but unsatisfied with where we're at in our, in our growth. We always want to continue on. And so that brings us to where we're at this morning. Specifically, we're going to start by looking at this miracle that we read. And I want to read it one more time, just a few verses. It's an incredible miracle of Jesus. So Mark chapter 8, 22 through 26. And they came to beside it, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. So have you ever had, have you ever had somebody who's speaking to you without actually speaking to you. Do you get that? You ever had that happen in your life? For example, like this, what, this is what it looks like um, with Becky and I. We do that, this with our, our children often. So we'll be out with friends and, and our kids and their kids and we're, we're having a meal together and I'll speak to my son while not actually speaking to my son and I'll say something to the other kid. I'll maybe notice that he's doing a really good job eating his meal, eating his vegetables. And so I'll say to the other kid in front of my kid, I'll say, Wow, big man, you're eating all of your food. That is awesome. Let me see those muscles. Let me see those muscles. Those are huge. And suddenly, what happens? My son Isaiah is like, well, in that case, he starts, starts eating up. And one thing uh, a college student taught um, my, my son Isaiah to do that he loves to do now is he, he takes his muscles and goes, check out these babies. <laughs> it's awesome. And so uh, now he's... Uh, He's, uh, he's eating his vegetables and whatnot, but we'll pull that number on him occasionally. We'll, we'll speak to somebody else, but we're actually, you know, talking to our own child. And here in this story, here's what's going on. Jesus is speaking to this blind man. He's interacting with this blind man, and, and the message and the method that he uses with the blind man appears to communicate some very important truths and illustrate some very important things to the hearts of Jesus' disciples who were right there with him. And so at first read-through of this miracle, it kind of seems like, ah, just another simple miracle of Jesus. Somebody has sight, which of course is not simple, but it seems like one of, of the many. But this morning we need to see that this particular miracle really, really stands out for several reasons. So let's start by looking at, at the setting here. This miracle is, is one of, of two that are recorded by Mark alone and no, no other gospel writers. And so this miracle is, is unique to Mark. And, and when looking at this miracle in the, the whole gospel of Mark as a whole, we see that this particular miracle is a major turning point in uh, the ministry of Jesus, because it's the last miracle that Jesus will, uh, will, will uh, do in the region 
of Galilee. And so ever since Mark chapter 1, back at the beginning of this year, ever since Mark chapter 1, we first started this series, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, goes right into Galilee. He's been ministering in this, this, this region, but now here we are, the last miracle in Galilee, and he's going to be moving out of this region. He's going to be moving out of this region that is home for him, uh, was home for the disciples, a region where he had headquartered his ministry for quite some time now, and this period is is ending in his ministry, this this miraculous sign kind of, of, of period in his ministry. And in chapter 9, if you look ahead a little bit, you'll see that he does do one more miracle, but it's not in Galilee. It's um, out in uh, Caesarea Philippi in chapter 9. But what will happen is after that miracle, he and his disciples will, will circle back down around through Galilee, and it'll kind of be this private little ministry tour with Jesus and his disciples. But the public ministry is, is done. It is no more. Instead, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to focus in solely on his disciples here. And then what will happen is together they'll cross the Jordan and they'll start heading south towards Judea. They'll spend a couple of months in, in the southern area of, of Israel, and then they're going to go over into Jerusalem where Jesus will be uh, rejected and die on the cross and resurrect back to life. So that's where we're going. But this is it for, for Galilee where we're at this morning. And uh, in fact, even this time when he comes into Galilee, uh, this time he's, he's really only here to, to spend time and teach uh, specifically his disciples, but naturally being, uh, beside of being home to several of the disciples, uh, where some of the disciples were, were born and, and raised, naturally word's going to kind of leak a little bit. Maybe they told a family member who told somebody. And so, of course, some people bring somebody to Jesus for Jesus to uh, heal this man. And they bring uh, this blind man to Jesus. And it's uh, the, the public ministry of, of Jesus is over. And so what he does, instead of creating a scene and doing it right there in front of everybody, what Jesus does is he takes the blind man outside of, of the village for his healing. Remember, he's, he's finished with the public miracles, and, and he brings him outside. And notice up in verse 12 of chapter 8, if you want to look up there. In verse 12, he says uh, to the Pharisees who are seeking a sign from him, he says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He's already done a lot of signs. So, of course, signs have been given. He's saying no more signs. We're, we're done with the signs. He has given enough to the people to, to stimulate faith. He has cast out demons. We've seen that. We've seen him uh, cause the lame to walk. We've seen him cause the, the deaf to hear. We, he's, he's, he's calmed a deadly storm. He's walked on water uh, with, with just five loaves and two fishes. He's fed 5,000 men. He put in the women and the children, Twenty to 25,000 people. He's done plenty of miracles to stimulate faith. He has done enough. And now the public ministry is over, and we move into part two here. Part two is, is the private ministry of Jesus to his disciples. And this private ministry is launched with a private miracle here. In, in Mark chapter 8, 22 through 26. And so there's, there's the, the setting, this huge divide in the gospel. A new, uh, new uh, section of Jesus' ministry is now ushered in through this private miracle. Now, let's get into the story a little bit. In, in verse 22, we see Jesus and his crew have come into Bethsaida, and some people bring him this, this blind man. And what do they ask of Jesus? Notice this. They ask Jesus if he might touch 
this, this blind man. And, and in many ways, the ministry of Jesus has become uh, what I would call a touching and a teaching ministry, right? Jesus has done quite a bit of teaching, and he has done specifically, as we see here in Mark, quite a bit of touching. He's, he's healing people most commonly by, by touching them and by touching really the untouchable of, of this society. And, and so the people that he was touching were, would, would be people who in that culture, in that society, were considered ceremonially unclean, people who uh, were, were viewed as having that specific ailment, whether it be a handicap or a disease, having that as some kind of affliction or direct result of a specific sin in their life. So that was given to them by God. That was the view of the society. That was bad theology. Uh, we, we are, we're all sick and we all will die at some point. People are sick. Disease is here. Uh, not necessarily because of a specific sin in your life, but because of my sin and your sin, because all of our sin, right? In their culture, they said, you are that way because of something specific that you have done or maybe your father or your mother has done that. And so these people would be socially outcast. They would be unsynagogued. They would be lacking in fellowship. They would be lacking in this, the ability to have corporate worship with other people and, and, and probably in many ways lacking Hope, But Jesus would willingly kind of take on this stigma, right, of touching the people and, and then himself being viewed as ceremonially un- unclean. He would touch the untouchable. And he's really been doing this ever since the beginning of his Galilean ministry back in chapter 1. Remember Peter's mother-in-law who was, was sick and on her deathbed. What does he do? He reaches and grabs her with his hand and he pulls her up out of her deathbed. Uh, later he touches a leper and he heals the leper. Uh, we see in chapter 3, verse 10, that all kinds of people, sick and, and diseased people, come and press in on Jesus so that they might touch him. Uh, you go on in chapter 6, verse, verse 5, that he is touching. It says he's touching sick people and, and healing them. And so just see the compassion of our Lord in this, that he's touching the un- untouchable, that our God is up close and personal. And unlike the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders that we saw in Mark chapter 7, who were trying constantly to set themselves apart and above and, and just very pridefully uh, setting themselves apart from the people, Jesus instead is coming and, and, and being among the people and he's touching people. And this was really astounding for these people that the transcendent God of the universe would humble himself and come and be among the people and, and touch them. And even today, we need to know that, that he wants to give his personal touch into every single one of our lives, that he wants to give that to you. But here specifically, something really interesting happens with regards to the, the touch of Jesus. And I want to see this. Before we get into that, just a quick little side note. I want you to see that, that Jesus takes this blind man by the hand and leads him outside of the village because he wants to do this miracle in private because the public ministry is over. Think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of, of this blind man. You have been for years and years and years. We don't know like the other blind man that he healed. We don't know that this one was necessarily a, a man born blind. But just imagine for years that stigma being untouchable on you. And you've been without human touch. And Jesus takes you by the hand and he holds your hand and brings you and walks you personally outside of the city. It's just rare human touch for this man and it must have been overwhelming. And now they get outside of of the city and watch what happens 
with the healing touch of Jesus who has this touching ministry. Look at verse 23. Jesus places saliva on the blind man's eyes. I don't want to I don't want to go too deep into Scripture and, and speculate things that, that we can't really know for sure. People have taken what the, the symbolism of the saliva is all about. Most likely, I'd say it's probably just a, a symbolic of the transfer of God's power, much like James. You see the elders are to anoint people with oil, which symbolizes the, the healing power of the Holy Spirit. So it's probably symbolic of the transfer of power. We can't know for sure, but he does this. He lays hands on him. And then what does he do? He, he asks the man, he says, do you see anything? What, what, do, you, what do you see? Do you see anything? And, and, and what was the response of the blind man? Look at verse 24. He says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. In other words, it, it, it's, it's a little bit blurry, right? Even a blind man knows that, that men are standing vertical and that trees are vertical. And so even if he was born blind, never had sight, he's going to know it's men, but they're, they're kind of blurry. And so what we see here is it's unclear that this man wasn't perfectly healed. And so what does Jesus do? He does step two of this miracle, and he lays hands on the man again. This time, the man's sight is restored, and he sees everything clearly, everything perfectly. Twenty twenty vision now. So... Here's what I want to do. I want to think about this for a second because I don't know if, if, if that first read you, you caught it, but maybe now you do. Think about the fact that, that this man wasn't immediately perfectly healed. We know that Jesus has had, as, as we've read up, up to this point, has had all power to do all kinds of miracles. He's had no trouble whatsoever in any of his, his miracles up to this point. Whatever he speaks, whatever he demands, it happens immediately. It happens perfectly. He's had no trouble. And so the question is, what's up with his healing power that in this case, he, he, he does it once and the vision is blurry and then he does it, tries again, and it actually works. What's going on? Is he like Superman, you know, and he's found his kryptonite and his power's not working so well now? Is, is that what's going on? No, that's not what's going on. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He, he, he didn't want the man to fully see right off the bat here. And we know this because look what Jesus says. He says, do you see anything? He's asking, okay, tell me, what do you see? I want you to say that it's, it's, it's blurry. And, and this is the only miracle of all the gospel accounts where after Jesus heals somebody, he asks them a question. And he's asking because he knows that the man is not going to fully see. Jesus is, is in complete control here. It's not that Jesus was struggling with this miracle. It wasn't like, oh no, we found a stubborn one this time. I can't, I can't, get, I can't make this happen. And let me try again. Oh good, it worked this time. Okay, Whew, that was a close one. No, it's not what's, what's going on here. What he's doing is he's launching Part two of his ministry, moving from the public to the private. He's moved into now the, 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 the private training of the 12. And this private miracle here is obviously beneficial for the blind man, but, but this miracle is for the 12. This is, this is for these guys. And what he's illustrating with this last miracle here in Galilee is, is something very important for these these men to see. And so he asked the question out loud of the blind man, what do you see? What do you see? And, and he wants the man to answer out loud what he sees right before the disciples. And he says, I see, I see uh, what looks like uh, 
trees walking, and it's, it's blurry. And, and so Jesus, what he's doing is he's telling his disciples this, this really kind of crucial point in the ministry where they're turning a corner. He's telling them this. He's saying, guys, you see me, but you, you don't see me clearly. Like, you know that I'm God. And, and, and you're starting to get me, but, but you don't really see me clearly yet. And, and, and so what Jesus is going to do now as he turns the corners, he's going to focus in on these men, and he's going to touch them and give them full sight. He's going to train them. He's going to disciple them more, focus, and he's going to uh, correct their ignorance and their lack of, of, of clarity. And so I want to show you how, how, how we kind of see more of this as we move on into the next few verses that, that we kind of get this glimpse of the disciples who have partial sight. So they, they do see partially like the blind man saw partially. But then they also have ignorance. So they have partial sight and they have ignorance. So look at verse 27 through 30 again. And, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others uh, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And so here's what happens. After this miracle, and he fully heals the blind man, he continues on, and they go to Caesarea Philippi, a, a Gentile region north of there. And they go there, and on the way, he's speaking to them, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they answer with various answers. He says, well, some people say John the Baptist, who was beheaded, right? And so maybe you're John the Baptist back, right? Some people say that you're Elijah, who was uh, a man who never died but was ushered into heaven by the chariot of fire, right? So some people say maybe you're Elijah, he says, others say that you're one of the prophets. And he goes, okay, but, but who do you, who do you say that, that I am? And, and, and the disciples respond. Peter responds. He's the spokesman. He responds on behalf of all the disciples. He says something very profound. He says, you are the Christ. Elsewhere, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so right on, Peter, right? He, he got it right. I mean, he, he nailed it. Jesus is the one that Israel had been waiting for. He's the Messiah. And so this is a big declaration. This is the first time somebody's really gotten it, or at least it's recorded that somebody's gotten it, other than demons. And demons in, this, in the gospel so far, they realize who Jesus is. They, they said the Holy One of God. They've gotten it. But this is the first declaration recorded out of the mouth of a man. Jesus is the Christ. And so right on, Peter. He, he has it. But when Jesus goes on, and, and Jesus goes on to tell them that he is going to be rejected and killed, suddenly we see their ignorance. So the partial sight and the ignorance. Check this out, 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and the things uh, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Oh, man. Okay, so this is not good. We see this beautiful, profound declaration. You are... The Christ, right, partial sight, followed nearly immediately by 
a rebuke of Jesus. I mean, he rebukes Jesus for saying that he would be rejected and killed. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear that Jesus would be rejected and, and killed. And verse 32 even says, listen, Jesus said it plainly and clearly. It wasn't confusing. He wasn't trying to be poetical about it. He wasn't trying to be allegorical about it. He just said very plainly, very clearly, I'm going to be rejected and kill and rise again. But all they heard was the death part. They weren't even listening to the rise again part. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside, starts to rebuke Jesus. No way, it's not going to happen. We're not going to have this. He starts to scold, scold Jesus. Now, this is coming from, from Peter, who is quick to speak often. You read the life of Peter. He is always quick to speak, always putting his foot in his mouth. He just didn't want to hear that Jesus, the one who he had, he had left everything to follow, was, was going to be killed. This is what I would call a, 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 a is-that-your-dad scenario. Can I call it that? That makes no sense. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Remember early middle school, late elementary school, when you're, you're at that point where you just start to become self-conscious for the first time and suddenly you kind of cross that line where it is taboo to kiss mom or dad in public, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So um, I, I call, it, call this the is that your dad scenario, and here it is in, in my life. So I, I remember playing baseball, and, and my dad would often come and, and pick me up from baseball practice, and, and occasionally my dad would bust out of the garage uh, this one car that he had. It was a 1970 Dodge Charger. That's the Dukes of Hazard car. Same year and everything, but it was yellow with a black vinyl top. And he would break that out of the garage, and I'd be at baseball practice, finishing up practice, and you would hear that bad boy with a Hemi engine come roaring down the street. And kids would go, Josh, is that your dad? And I was like, yeah, that's my dad. That was my dad. And I'd hop in the I'd hop in the car and roar off and I'll be all proud about it. Now, this experience is completely contrary to the occasions where my dad would come to my sporting events and he would come out of the car and, and get up in the stands and I would notice my dad up in the stands going, yeah, baby, yeah, Josh. And I would look up there. You know what my dad would be wearing occasionally? He had this tie-dye shirt that he liked to wear. And he had these red Chuck Taylors that he liked to wear. But they were so old, they were faded to pink. And, and, and he'd be going, yeah, baby, yeah. And kids would go, Josh, is that your dad? Uh, I didn't want to answer. I didn't want to admit that that was my dad. I know I'm ashamed of it today. He was, yeah, he's my dad. That's kind of cool. It makes for good sermon illustrations. But listen, I didn't, I didn't want to answer. And for Peter and the disciples... They loved rolling up with Jesus, the miracle worker. Is that your Messiah? Yeah, that's my, ma- that's my Messiah. He's, he's my master. I'm with him. Right, but the thought of rolling up with the, the suffering, rejected Messiah, is that your, you left everything for that? Are you kidding me? They're going to kill him. He's done. He's toast. He's doing nothing about it. For them, it was like, no, Jesus. No, Jesus, we, no, don't do, don't do that. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, uh-uh, this can't happen. This, can't, this cannot happen. And, and Jesus turns it right back around, doesn't he, on, onto Peter. And, and he rebukes Peter right there in front of all of the other disciples and says, your thinking is satanic. Do not try to stop 
what I'm about to do. Remember when, when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples sometimes later, and uh, sometime later, and, and he's washing their feet, and, and he gets to Peter, and Peter says, no, don't, don't wash me, don't wash me. And what does he say? No, you need me to wash you. Likewise, you, you need me to die. Don't try to stop this, Peter. Your thinking is satanic. Get behind me, Satan, he, he, he says. And, and, and maybe now you can begin to see kind of how the, the healing of, of the blind man illustrates the hearts of the disciples. They get it. Jesus is, he is the Messiah. They get that. There's sight in that. But he, he, he wasn't seeing clearly and fully, and, and nor were the rest of the disciples. And so that's kind of where they're at. They like the Messiah, but not the suffering Messiah. They didn't understand that he must suffer. He must take on our sin as the only one who could and, and die as the payment, the ransom, the, the atonement for our sins so that we who place faith in him would be free. They didn't fully get that. And so for me later, as then I was a self-conscious middle schooler, but now later, I get the beauty of my dad in the stands looking all goofy, screaming. I get the beauty of that. He didn't care about how he, he cared about being there to support me and to, to scream at me and, and, and say, get out there, push it. That, it was all about that. I get it now. I, I have sight now, but then my sight was only, only partial. And, and for the disciples, the cross becomes this, this major ongoing struggle for the disciples all the way up to really the very end of this book. Jesus is working on them. And, and, and like the blind man, he's going to touch them and say, all right, here's, here's the fullness of sight. Here's the fullness of sight. And we have some stuff to work on. And we really see this over the next three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, and, and chapter 10. We see varied responses. It's interesting what Jesus moves into here is three times, one per chapter, tells them the announcement of his death three different times. And each time they respond differently. So let me just kind of point this out. Chapter 8, as we see here, he announces it, that he's going to die on the cross. He's going to be rejected and, and, and killed on the cross and rise again. Peter pulls him aside, and what does he do? He pulls him aside and questions him. So there's some questions here. That's, that's the first response. The second response, chapter 9, Jesus announces it. But uh, look at verse 32 of, of chapter 9. It says, they didn't under, understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So he announces it again, but this time, there, we still don't get it, and yet, I don't want to speak up, because remember what happened when Peter spoke up, Jesus called him Satan, so I'm not talking, this, and they were just afraid to ask anything about it, even though they didn't fully get it, and then he moves into chapter 10, Jesus announces it again, but look at the response in verse 35, James and John asked Jesus to do him a favor, and they say, Jesus, can you let us sit at your right hand, and your left hand, in your kingdom, in, in glory, so... The third time, it's as if Jesus didn't say anything at all. He just kind of ignored it. So you kind of see the, the different responses that, that people can have and we can have when, when we struggle with some of the teachings of Jesus, particularly here, the cross. Maybe one response you might have is, is, is the questioning. And, and Peter questioned Jesus. Chapter 9, the response was they pull back and don't say anything. And they're, they're thinking about it, but they don't say anything. And then chapter 10 is just, they completely ignore it. And so, as we close, here's, here's my fear for us. 
My, my fear for us is, is that as we face things in this book that are difficult, and there are plenty of things that are difficult in this book, and maybe you particularly have something that you're kind of hung up on right now, you've struggled with, maybe you struggled with it at one point. My fear for you is as, as you face things in this book that are, are difficult, whether it be a truth about the person of God, whether it be something that God calls you to or to stop, or maybe God's plan for your life, my fear is that you, as, as you struggle through these things, that you respond in this sequence that the, the disciples we see here respond in. There's questioning, and then there's, I don't want to really talk about it, to I just ignore it altogether and you kind of forget about it. You kind of su- suppress it. And, and let's think through the sequence a little, a little bit more. Some people will press in and, and, and question. Now, Peter questions inappropriately, right? He rebukes Jesus. He, he's, he's kind of got that prideful, not going to happen, Jesus. I don't like this, Jesus, kind of questioning. But a, a good example of how to question God would be Abraham back in, in Genesis chapter 18, right? God is, is going to destroy Sodom, and, and Abraham has some questions. And so the way he questions God is, is appropriate. The way he questions God with, with all humility in verse 27, he says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. And so that's good kind of questioning. It's okay to question God. It's good to question God, not to suppress it, but to question, but do so with humility. So some people will question but other people, that next step we saw for the disciples in, in chapter 9 is you become afraid to ask. And, and there's various reasons why maybe you're afraid to ask questions. Maybe you're afraid of how you might look around your friends who seem so spiritual. Maybe it's you're afraid to ask because uh, you know that you're not going to like the answer that you're going to get, right? Some, some things in the Bible are, are difficult. And you kind of know and you don't want to ask because you, you think you know where the answer is going to be. I would say this, um, I would say that as, as you grow up in the faith, um, we have a tendency to become a little more put together, and we have this tendency to want to, to act like I know it all and, and, and stop pressing so much. And I would encourage you on the flip side to press more and more and more. I would say this to parents and future parents. I would say that you need to set up your home in such a way where with your kids, it is permissible to ask questions. Um, maybe some of you grew up in the faith and you were afraid to ask questions because you knew mom and dad would freak out and you suddenly look like a rebel and they just, they're going to pull all the privileges away. Listen, as a parent, set your place up, your home up, such that, that it's okay to question. and it, it's, it's a good thing to question. And so some will question, others will be afraid to ask, and then others are going to get to the point, unfortunately, where they just ignore it altogether. They don't even hear it anymore. They just suppress it. And that's where the disciples get before Jesus comes in and corrects them. And so I just want to ask you um, this morning, are there areas where you need some clarity on something? Maybe it's in Scripture. Maybe it's in in a piece of the, the plan for your life that God is starting to reveal to you. And you just need some some, some clarity. Maybe, maybe you're like the blind man and like the disciples where you, you see enough to, to trust Jesus and you see enough to say he's God and, and, and I, I put faith in him. I, I get that. But there are some things that you're, you're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't get that. And, 
And the, the tendency is to suppress and ignore those questions. And I would call you to, to ask the questions, but ask the questions uh, appropriately like Abraham does. God wants to answer the questions. And so, so press in, press in. Take the scriptures in and press in. And, and that's a simple challenge for you this morning from Mark chapter 8 as we see this major turning point that Jesus um, brings his disciples to where they're now going to have this, this focused time for the next few chapters before the triumphal entry. They're going to have this focused time where Jesus is just really ministering to these guys and preparing them, his disciples. And, and he needs to do that with you. He wants to do that with you. Is, is really focus in on you, disciple you, and answer your questions. Don't suppress where you're on your deathbed and you had all these questions and you just ignored them. But go in deeper now. Let me pray.